0: Revelation chapter 13, and John said, I stood upon the sand of the sea, verse 1, probably the Mediterranean Sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy, verse 1. The sea represents, of course, the multitudes of people the Mediterranean Sea, the multitudes of people that live around the Mediterranean Sea. And out of it, he sees this hydro-headed beast with seven heads and 10 horns. And we are told in the book of Revelation that the seven heads are the seven mountains upon which the beast sits. The 10 horns are 10 kings. And Daniel, as he also described the beast that he cannot really describe, I mean, a non-descriptive type of a beast, it had 10 horns. And again, the Lord told Daniel that the 10 horns were the 10 Kings that were going to give power to the beast. <clears throat> so there is going to arise upon the earth, a 10 nation federation, 10 kingdoms federating together. Daniel 2, and the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation by Daniel, and there shall arise, Daniel said, the 11th, which will destroy three speaking blasphemous things. He will take control, take power. So the rise of the beast, the Antichrist, the one who is going to rise to take over control of the earth, speaking, as Paul said, blasphemous things against God. And Daniel makes reference of his blasphemies. He shall speak great words, he said, against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, who of course is Satan, gave him his power. His throne and great authority. Verse 2. Now, where is Satan's throne? It is on this earth. We say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. Well, that is prophetic. The earth right now is under Satan's control. This is his place of dominion, and he rules. Jesus came to redeem the world back to God. Satan took him into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all these I will give unto you and the glory of them if you will bow down and worship me for they are mine and I can give them to whomever I will. Luke 4, 5, and 6. Now, the fact that they are still Satan's is demonstrated by the fact that the Antichrist, which is yet future, receives from him his authority, his power, and his throne. And so Satan is going to invest in a man all of his power and all of his authority. It will be Satan incarnate. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound. Was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Verse 3. Now, we are told a little further down in verse 14 that the false prophet comes and says to the people who dwell upon the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. This man will be a world leader. There will be an assassination attempt, apparently successful, but he miraculously survives the deadly wounds. Though according to Zachariah, it will probably leave him blinded in his right eye and without the use of his right arm. Yet the very fact that he survives this assassination attempt causes the world to marvel and it brings him immediately into a prominent position in the minds of so many people because it is by a definite miracle that this man survives. One of his heads were wounded to death, but the deadly wound was healed. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power to the beast, verse four. Satan worship. Oh, people wouldn't worship Satan. That's ridiculous. We used to think that, didn't we? Now they have the satanic church and people are consciously, knowingly worshiping Satan. And here they worship the dragon through his incarnated person, the Antichrist. And they say, who is likened unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Verse four. He will have tremendous power and tremendous authority. He will subdue three probably of the most powerful kingdoms to take over the rule. He will put to death the two witnesses who have been, up to this point, have been invincible. And we remember last time in chapter 11, the two witnesses, whoever tried to hurt them, they would call fire down from heaven and consume them. And they had been invincible up to this point. But the beast destroys them. He puts them to death. And so the world will marvel at this man's power, and they will say, who can make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Verse 5. And again, this is mentioned by Daniel, both in chapter 7 and chapter 11. And power was given unto him to continue for three and a half years, 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that's his dwelling place, and them that dwell in heaven, Revelation 13, 5 and 6. Now, this man is a man of open blasphemy. And again, Paul makes mention of that in 2 Thessalonians 2, as Paul talks about the man of sin, the son of perdition. So he opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God, that is worshipped, so that he is God and sits in the temple, calling himself God and declaring himself to be God speaking blasphemies against God and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all the families tongues and nations verse 7 now this war with the saints and overcomes them also is predicted in Daniel he makes war with the saints, Daniel says, and prevails against them. These saints could not be the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus announces to Peter, his church, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there is no way that Satan can prevail against the church of Christ. But these are the people who have received Christ during this final seven-year period after the church has been taken out. As a result of the witness of those two witnesses, or the witness of the 144,000, these people have received Jesus Christ as Lord. They have acknowledged Jesus as their Lord. But he will make war against them and prevail them. He has power to put to death, and he will put to death those that believe in Jesus Christ. But being martyred is preferable to submitting to his authority or worshiping him. Because we will find out in the next chapter that if anybody worships him, they lose any chance of salvation forever. And so john tells us here of the reign over all the families of the earth the tongues and the nations and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world verse 8. so there is interestingly enough a book of life And Moses made mention of this when he was praying to God and interceding for the nation of Israel. God, forgive them. And he said, I pray you will not blot out my name out of your book of remembrances, Exodus 32, 32. And the book of life is mentioned Again, here in the book of Revelation, Paul makes mention of it, and, the, and Paul tells us that our names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, here is the book of life of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, there is a teaching that I feel borders on blasphemy of the character of God that declares the limited knowledge of God. In other words, it would deny that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. And this teaching basically declares that Adam disappointed God and took him by surprise when Adam sinned, that when the plan, then the plan of of redemption was inaugurated at that moment. Now that Adam blows it, what are we going to do? And then the redemption, redemption plan was then devised. But here... The plan of redemption, we are told, existed before the foundation of the world, before man was ever created. God knows. Why would God create man if he knew that man was going to blow it? (laughs) Because God desires fellowship. God desired meaningful fellowship with man. It's a big universe, you get awfully lonely in the universe. But to have true friends, to have a meaningful relationship with them, there has got to be this freedom. God could create robots. The worship of a robot would be meaningless. I mean, the robot would say, I love you. But how do you know? It is all programmed into his computer. You could also program into the computer, I hate you. Again, it wouldn't do too much to you. You wouldn't go home all devastated because the robot said, I hate you. You know, it's just a robot. It doesn't have a will of its own. It's only spitting out what has been programmed into it. And God could have made us just like that, just like robots, spitting out what is programmed in. But you really would not have a meaningful relationship. You would never develop a meaningful relationship with a robot. You may have a more meaningful relationship with your dog than you would a robot because your dog can disobey you at times. He has the will. You usually make him submit to your will, but he has a will of his own. So you can develop a relationship of sorts with a dog, but you will never be able to develop a relationship with a robot. So God made us with our free will in order that my relationship with him might be meaningful. I don't have to relate to God. I can blaspheme God if I want. I can turn my back on God if I want. And because there is that capacity and because my relationship with God is something that is volitional on my part, I want to relate to him. I desire and long for this relationship. I love him. And my declaration of such is meaningful then because it is the expression of my will. You see, I don't have to. I am not forced to. So from the foundation of the world, God knew that man was going to sin. God was ready to redeem man using really a strong incentive for man to come to God, declaring God's love to man. I mean, how could God show you that he loves you more than by sending his son to die in your place? John 15, 13. Greater love, Jesus said, is no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. The supreme sacrifice showing supreme love. No man can ever doubt God's love who looks at the cross. And it is interesting that God never seeks to prove his love for you apart from the cross. There is not one scripture where God tries to prove his love for you, except those that relate to the cross. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 For God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5.8. And God giving his son to you is the only way by which God has ever sought to prove that he loves you. And sometimes in our relationships, as peril, perilous as they often are, we say, prove that you love me. What do you want? Seize candy or at Calvary, Helen, Helen Grace candy? Prove that you love me. Well, if you would say to God, prove that you love me, he would just point to the cross. There is the proof. It is the only proof that you will ever need. Jesus Died for your sins, and that was a part of God's plan from the foundation of the world. Now, because He knows all things that is, when He wrote your name in that book, knowing your response to His love and grace, your name was written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, some have suggested that God has written everybody's name in, but then those who refuse to receive the grace of God, their names are blotted out. I don't know. But here we are told that those that dwell upon the earth whose names were not written, so it sort of contradicts that concept that everybody's name was written, whose names were not written, or not written in the book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. So a question to ourselves is, is my name in the book of life? If any man has an ear, let him hear. Revelation thirteen nine. Whenever the Lord has had something quite important to say, he usually throws that in. He that has an ear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Verse 10. Now, the Antichrist is making war against the saints, taking them captive, destroying them. But they that live by the sword will die by the sword. Those that take those believers into captivity will themselves soon be taken into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Verse 10. So it is a word of encouragement to the saints who are going to be experiencing this horrible persecution from the Antichrist. And I beheld another beast, the false prophet, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, verse 11. In other words, he looked like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon, verse 11. Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The one thing about false prophets is they never look like a false prophet. Satan never looks like the characters of Satan. He does not have horns or a forked tail and a pitchfork in his hand, and he doesn't wear red leotards. He would like you to think that he did he would like you to think that he is some grotesque looking character that would scare the wits out of you. If you ever saw him, he would like you to think that because that way he can go around cleverly disguised as an angel of light, beautiful, speaking such soothing words to the flesh. Why don't you just go ahead and enjoy yourself? Drink of pleasure till it is full. And you would say, Oh, That can't be Satan. That is so charming and so enticing. Satan is ugly. I don't see any pitchfork. And that is why he's able to deceive. So the false prophet has horns like a lamb, but listen to what he says. And he exercises all the power of the first beast which were before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, verse 12. So several times there is the mention of this deadly wound being healed. And it's really sort of the rallying point by which the false prophet draws the people to worship the beast. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man, verse 13. Now, you remember the two witnesses were doing this they were bringing down fire from heaven. And now he duplicates it. You remember in the case of Moses going before the Pharaoh, how that the magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to duplicate to a point the miraculous things that Moses was doing. Moses threw down his rod on the floor and became a serpent. They threw down their rods and they became serpents too. That duplication of godly miracles. Now, Satan is able to counterfeit many of the things of God. He can't counterfeit all of them, but he can counterfeit many of the things of God and does counterfeit many of the things of God. And here is a counterfeit. The two witnesses calling down fire from heaven. Now, this dude comes along and he calls down fire from heaven in the sight of men. And deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying of them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Verse 14. Now again in second Thessalonians you have a parallel type of passage in chapter 2 as the Antichrist is described he is called whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this cause second Thessalonians. 2, 9. What cause? Because people didn't love the truth, the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the truth and the life, but people don't love the truth. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they would believe a lie, that they might be damned to believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Second Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. So God is going to give them a strong delusion that they might believe. In the Greek, it is a definite article, the lie, the big lie of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. So he deceives them. You don't want to believe the truth. God gives them over to delusion. God allows them to be deceived, but they made the choice first. You know, I am amazed at the things that people who have rejected Jesus Christ will believe. When you reject the knowledge of the truth in Christ, you are a prey to all kinds of stupidity. I am amazed at the foolish things that people do who reject the truth of Jesus Christ. They wear white robes standing on street corners, shaving their heads and working finger symbols and doing their little chantings, doing the mantras, and doing their ums, watching the people up in Oregon as they are worshiping their guru, seeing the outlandish sayings that he is leading them to. As they have mass hysteria, heavy breathing, calisthenics followed by uncontrolled screaming. What a prey man becomes when he rejects the truth you don't want to be wise and receive the grace of God, then be stupid. And people believe and do the most ignorant and stupid things who have rejected the truth of God. I'm amazed at many of these college professors who pretend toward their superior intelligence of some of the weird things that they do of supposedly intelligent men. But because they did not love the truth, God gives them over to a strong delusion. And they soon believe a lie. The truth is still the truth, even if no one believes it. And a lie is still a lie, even if everyone believes it. And this is a story that was recounted to me a couple of years ago. Several years ago, I was invited to come to a meeting of the supposed intelligentsia of Orange County. There were a bunch of college professors and doctors who were supposed to be the cream of the intelligentsia. And I was brought as a specimen of ignorance so they could play games and be amused by the fact that I actually believed in a living God who created the heavens and the earth. So I was brought in for their amusement that they could eat me up. And as I sat there during their preliminaries and this one sort of leader of the group of superior intelligence sat on the floor in the Lotus position and began to tell me of all his accomplishments and all of his intelligence and everything else, I felt sorry for him. He was so wise yet so deceived and so foolish. And finally, after a period of time, they said, well, what do you have to bring to us tonight? Because they told me how that they had LSD sessions, these very intelligent people, and they called themselves seekers, they were seeking truth and they had had LSD, they had had cocaine and everything else. After all of of your seekers, you can excuse anything that you want to do while you're seeking the truth. The one sitting in the lotus position declared that he was a Buddhist priest and he had studied Buddhism under him. I said, well, you have obviously searched through everything, but the fact that you call yourself seekers, you obviously are still searching, I said. Maybe in all of your searching, you have overlooked something that you have already searched through. I said, why don't we start with the basics? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the men interrupted me and said, now, when you say God, are you talking about the anthropomorphic concept of God? And then some other guy started challenging him and they got into this big ruckus about this. And as they were in this big rhubarb, I, I bowed my head and I started praying. And I said, God, if you get me out of this place, I promise I will never come again. I have been neglecting my wife. I haven't spent enough evenings at home with her. Lord, forgive me. I am sorry. I should be home tonight with my wife and my family. My kids, they need me. Lord, and here I am in this mess. God, get me out of this mess or do something. Because I knew that there was no way I was going to get anywhere. And I didn't need this hassle. So... Finally, some lady there said, will you guys shut up? We hear you all the time. Every week we hear you guys going through this, some inane argument. and Now we have invited this guy to speak to us. The least we can do is listen. So they apologized and said, okay, you have the floor. And I looked at them and said, my soul and spirit are at complete rest. I am completely Satisfied. Hey, they all sat up on the edge of their seats and they started listening extremely attentively because that is something none of them could say. With all of their arguments, with all of their intelligence, with all of their background, none of them could say, My soul and spirit are at rest. I am satisfied. And the Lord allowed me to share for about an hour the richness and the fullness that can be experienced in Jesus Christ. And then (laughs) the Lord got me out of there. But in the succeeding weeks, I had several of them call and come in and receive Jesus Christ because there is only one way that a man can find rest and peace. And that is in and through Jesus. And you may search the world over and you may have all kinds of bizarre experiences, but you will never have rest until you have him but those who refuse the truth are open for deception. What a fantastic story. So he comes with deceiving wonders and they make this image and they have power to give life to the image of the beast, verse 15. Now, there is a lot of talk lately by some of the far out physicists of creating a computer that can be biologically connected to certain types of organisms and will have life in itself. And this bio kind of computer has had several articles written on it. There is a research research group in Canada that is working on such a thing right now. It is sort of a computer that will be able to think on its own kind of, and this kind of an idea, one that can, that you can't turn off. And they say, this is the next step in the evolutionary process. It will be higher than man and will be able to rule man and give us the answers to life and its problems and so forth because they can create it with so much more intelligence than man. That's the talk of the far-out physicist. Interestingly enough, they're going to make an image of the Antichrist and put it in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple, and they are going to give life to it now, this is the ultimate blasphemy. This is the abomination, which will cause the desolation or the great tribulation. This is the final straw. At this point, the wrath and the fury of God will be poured out upon the earth, and the earth will go through a time of great tribulation, such as it is never seen before or will ever see again. When the Antichrist comes to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and proclaims himself to be God and stands in the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and announces himself as God, that is the ultimate blasphemy. They set up this image in the temple and they give power to it. That both should speak and have life. And they cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed verse 15. Now you have sort of a historic kind of a picture here when Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, made the golden image of himself and set it in the plains of Dura and caused everyone to bow down and worship it in order that if anyone should refuse to worship it, that they should be cast alive into the burning fiery furnace. Now the image that he made was making a statement. Nebuchadnezzar had had a troubling dream that Daniel had interpreted. It was a great image. It had a head of gold, chest of silver, stomach of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron, and clay with 10 toes. This dream interpreted was the image where the nations that would rule the world headed by Babylon, the head of gold, which was to be replaced by the Medo-Persian empire, the chest of silver, which would be replaced by the Grecian Empire, the stomach of brass, which would be destroyed by the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, and the final world-governing empire, a relationship to the Roman Empire, ten nations, the ten toes, federated together. And during the time of reign of these ten kings, the Lord of Glory would come in and establish his kingdom that would never end. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was making a statement with this image. Why? Because he made it all of gold. Though, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, God has given you a kingdom to reign over the earth and all, but you are going to be replaced, Daniel 2.38. He is saying, I am not going to be replaced. Babylon will last forever. It was a statement, and people were ordered to pay obeisance to that statement to acknowledge, to acknowledge that Babylon would be eternal. It would not be destroyed. It would not be overthrown. It was a statement of contradiction to God's word that declared that Babylon would be overthrown. It was a statement of rebellion against God. And people were commanded to agree to that statement by bowing down and worshiping the image. And you have that same counterpart to the image being set up and everyone being ordered to worship this image and being put to death if they refuse to worship the image. You remember that shortly after that, he went insane, Nebuchadnezzar, and spent seven seasons in insanity until what? (laughs) Until he acknowledged that God did rule over the kingdoms of man and would set on the thrones those who he would, his little statement of blasphemy against God was finally changed. And he caused everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. Revelation 13, 60. Now, worldwide, we currently have these smart cards, right? A smart card looks much like a regular Visa card or MasterCard, with the exception that the smart card has implanted in it a little computer chip that keeps track of your account. And if you try to use that card and you are above your limit, it just won't work. Your card knows just what your limits are. It keeps a constant monitoring of your account and you can't go over your limits with this smart card. Now, there's, of course, already implanting of computer chips under the skin on a person's hand for positive identification. I mean, they use it currently in the military. It is the same kind of thing as a smart card. It is the same kind of computer chip implanted under the skin of your hand, and it would do the same thing. It will keep track of your account so you could never overdraw. It could replace money completely. The computers could keep the whole accounting the chip would establish your limits and you would do all your buying and selling with the mark that is in your right hand and he causes all both small and great rich and poor free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead and this technology exists today these smart cards are in use right now there is still a few problems but it has eliminated a lot of shenanigans that take place with regular credit cards. And no man will be able to buy or sell unless he has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Revelation thirteen seventeen and 18. Now, the number of man in scripture is six, and you're aware with biblical biblical numerics that each number has a significance. The number seven is the number of completeness. The number six is short of completeness, incomplete man. The number 12 is the number of human government, and number 13 is the number for Satan, and in Hebrew and Greek, it is more meaningful than in English, because in the Hebrew and Greek, they also count with their alphabet. In other words, the alpha, beta, gamma, delta is one, two, three, four, as well as your A, B, C, D, and aleph, bet, gimel Deleth is the same in Hebrew, the one, two, three, four, it is your A, B, C, D also but it is also the numeric so that every greek letter has a numeric equivalent so you can do fun things with greek words such as you can total up the numeric equivalents of a greek word or you can total up the numerics in it and interestingly enough the number eight becomes the number for jesus and the number eight is the number for new beginnings seven is the complete number Seven notes in a scale, seven days in a week, so that the eighth becomes the new beginning. And when you come to the eighth day, you have a new week. You come to the eighth note, you have a new scale. So eight is the number of new beginnings. And significantly, it is the number of Jesus. He is a new beginning. And you total up the Greek letters that spell Jesus, and you have the number 888. And every name for Jesus, if you total up the letters, it is always divisible by eight. If you total up the letters and all of the names for Satan in Greek, they are always divisible by 13. So there's a lot of interesting games that you, that you can play with these numerics because they are there are numerical values here. So there are a lot of things that you could probably figure out that are spoken cryptically in the Bible if you would follow through on this numbers program. Now, here is the mind that has wisdom, here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number. It is the number of man and the number is 666. It is probably the total numeric value of the man's name, 666. Now, as we get to the 17th chapter, we'll get another clue. Let us pray. Oh, Father, your word is so exciting. Father, your word is so clear. Lord God, let our hearts just push out the dross. Let you burn it off so that we can see the gold of your word. So that we can see the refined meanings that are behind your word. Father, you have given us the book of Revelation that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ to us. His purpose, his mission, and what we are going to see. Father, we love you so much. Lord, let our hearts follow you with a burning desire for nothing else. And Lord, let this world burn away in our hearts so that we can simply and clearly follow you. In Jesus name we pray. And all God's children said Amen.